John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We are continuing in our journeying with John series. Verse by verse study through the book, the Gospel of John. Um, did anyone learn anything last week? Did anyone learn anything? You guys learned some things? Uh, we're going to get even deeper into, uh, into the book today, and I'm excited about that. Um, remember, in, in verse last week, we talked about verse 14 and how verse 14 was telling us about who the word and the light and the life was. And that was who, church? Jesus. That was Jesus. Yes, it was Jesus Christ. And it was referred to the only begotten of the Father, the word in the flesh. It was speaking of Jesus Christ and how John the Baptist came as a precursor to the coming king. So now we're going to fast forward to um, where we left off last week. And we're going to start here in verse 15. If you're already there in John chapter 1, say amen. amen. All right, so we'll go ahead and get busy. First John, I'm sorry, not first John, but just John chapter 1, verse 15. All right, so let's look at verse 1, or verse 15. It says, John bear witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He was before me. I love the wording that John uses in this verse. Um, he that cometh after me is before me. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like a little bit of an oxymoron. You catch that? He that cometh after me is preferred before me. John recognizes some things that were very, very important. First, John talks about how he came first in physical succession because what? How was he able to come in first in physical succession? Who knows? He was older, right? He was Jesus' older cousin, right? Six months ahead. So he lets us know first, John comes in first physically in succession because he was older than his cousin Jesus. But secondly, he lets people know off the bat that Jesus is actually technically before him. How does that work? He says, hey, he that came cometh after me is preferred before me. So if he's first in succession physically, how is, how is John or how is Jesus now preferred before him? Why does, what does that mean? He's God, which means what, Brother Ray? He was there first. He was there, first. He was there in the beginning. We talked about that. We cross-referenced that last week with Genesis uh, chapter 1. Jesus existed in eternity past. We spent some time talking about that last week and the existence of the Trinity in a very subtle fashion way back in the book of Genesis. So, right, so we see John continuing already into the depth that comes with setting up John as being uh, distinctive from the other three Gospels. Let's look at verse 16. It says, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Now, can someone remember? Does someone know what is uh, what was Christ full of? He says here in verse 16, And of his fullness have we received grace for grace. What fullness? What fullness are we talking about? Does anyone know? Anyone paying attention? Uh -huh. What was that? What are you saying? I can't hear it. Grace. There's another one. True. Guess where you find that at? Verse 14. Remember I said last week that the Bible was the best one on itself. Who remembers? Commentary. Right? You go back to verse 14. It says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Read this last, this next part with me, church. 
full of grace and truth. So we know that he is automatic. So we know that here it's important to realize that um, the grace and truth that is talked about in verse 14, we have. It says, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. When it says grace for grace, does anyone know what that means? When it says grace for grace, it means um, very much like lathering. Like lathering and like kind of like plopping it. The best example I can think about it is maybe like, remember in school you had cafeteria food? And the, and the, the depiction of cafeteria food is that it's really gross, right? And that they would just scoop, you know, big scoops of it out of, out of the pot and just plop it on your tray, right? And you just think about how it's like plopped and then they get some more out and they plop some more in it. Sounds kind of gross, right? But you think about, but the way that it's talking about here in grace for, in grace for grace, is talking about how it's kind of heaped on top of each other. So if you look at it, um, if you look at it, it lets us know that those who come to Christ have full access to God's unmerited grace that is learned, that we learn is completely sufficient for us. It's completely sufficient for us. So if you look at it in that connotation, it completely transformed the meaning of what's going on. And so it says here, we read again in verse 16, and of his fullness have, uh, have all we received and grace that is just stacked upon grace that does not run out. Church, you know that God's grace doesn't run out? It doesn't. It does not, it does not run out. It acts in abundance. It's caked on. It's the unabused grace can never be exhausted. Now notice that I said unabused grace. Unabused grace, because I do believe that the grace of God has a limit. And that's why you see in the Bible that people are being given over to a what mind? Who knows it? A reprobate mind. And a reprobate mind literally means to be given over to what you already wanted to do. And so if you find yourself, I firmly believe that if, if God, if let's say that you struggle with something, right? And you go to God and say, God, I fell to this and I'm struggling with this. And then you mess up again and you may say, oh, I tried really hard and I failed. Because we're human, right? And that happens. And so God gives us grace. His forgiveness, his forgiving grace. Now, if it's something different, the word iniquity, we know it can be translated to premeditated sin. So if you're in a state now where you're doing this on purpose, and so let's say you're, let's say you're struggling with alcoholism, and you go and say, you know, you go to a, a, a dinner at a friend's house, and they offer you a glass of wine, and you start to struggle with that. You battle with that, and you ask God for the power to overcome, to not give unto that temptation. Grace applies, right? But if you're just going to a bar every night, and you're like, man, God, help me because I'm struggling, that's abusing grace. Because you're sticking yourself in the, in the path of temptation. You see what I'm saying, church? And so he says, hey, unabused grace is going to be something that can never run out. And boy, am I thankful because I need it. I need the grace of God in my life because I know that I fall short often. And I know that that may be the same for some of you. Look at verse 17. I want to spend some time on this. This is about to be really important. I want you to put a star by verse 17. Because he clarifies some very, very important things in this, in the next coming verses that we're going to be talking about here. Now, we're just getting into the Bible, church, right? We're getting into, we're going to, we're learning some things about the word. We're going to that. I know before Dr. Riggs used to talk about um, the levels. Remember how he talked about the levels? Anyone remember him talking about that? And how there's like a superficial level, not a superficial level, but a surface level, right? And then there's usually levels in which it gets deeper. 
right? We're going to find out some things that are very, very important that wrote that John here skates over a bit, but it's a lot deeper once you know the background of it. Look at verse 17. It says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible tonight, I want you to underline law. And I want you to underline Moses. And then I want you to underline grace and truth. And then underline Jesus. Because there's a big contrast that is given to us here in this passage. Here in this passage. Let me talk about law and grace for a minute. Moses gave the law, but Christ brought grace. Why is this important? Why is it important that Moses gave the law, but Christ brought grace? Grace needs the law. Check this out, church. Grace needs the law in order to exist. Grace needs the law in order to exist. But the law can exist and did exist without grace. You understand? Grace needs the law to exist. But the law operated without grace because it does not need grace. What does that mean? What's the difference? In the Bible, there are a total of 613 laws in the Old Testament. 613 laws. Now, we grew up on how many commandments, church? Ten. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I broke some of those Ten Commandments a lot Amen. growing up. Imagine trying to abide by 613. I don't even know them all, but I'm sure I broke some. Yeah? yeah. What are we, so what does that teach us? What does that, that teach us? Why is that significant? We have these 613 total laws in the Old Testament. How many people would say as a testament that it's probably really hard to keep all 613 laws? Breaking stuff you didn't even know existed, right? That's because what we find out is that the law, put a star by this next statement. The law gave commands with punishments, but no solution. The law gave commands with punishments, but not any solutions. If you read the Old Testament, if you read the Torah, you read the first five books of the law, what you're going to find out is just a lot of rules and a lot of punishments, but nothing in between. A lot of rules, you break the law, there's a punishment for the law. You break the law, there's a punishment for the law. But there was no solution. You either did it or you were punished for it. Why is that important? Because then you go over to the second half of this verse. Christ died on the cross for us and brought us grace. And brought us grace. See, grace works in spite of the law. Now do you see what I'm saying? Grace, the law did not need grace to exist because the law had no room for grace. The law had no room for grace. You either did what you were supposed to do, or you did not do what you were supposed to do, and you faced the consequences of it. Well, last week we looked at the wages of sin, which equals what, church? Death. Death. You either abide by the law, or you die. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Think about this. If there was no grace, you would just live your life just to go to a burning hell. Why? Because the Bible says that you were condemned already. The Bible says you don't have to worry about doing anything wrong because in sin where you conceived it and that your mother conceived you. So you were already condemned to an eternal punishment and eternal separation from God. But grace changed things. Grace was the game 
changer. Grace can be broken down to this. It's an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. What does that mean? That means that Christ paid the punishment for us that grace could have a place. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he tore the veil between you and I and God that gave us unlimited access to the almighty being of the universe. He gave us access to the almighty God, the one who, who created the heavens and the earth on the first day, and the one who spread the, the stars against the sky, and, and he's the one that dug the holes in the ground and stuck water in them and called it ocean. Like, the God of the, of the Bible, the God of the universe, we now had unfiltered access to. And grace was born. God looks down and says, okay, they're going to die if we don't do something. They are, they are not going to make it. They're going to be doomed to an eternal separation from me if we don't do something. He says, they can't pay for it, so I will. They can't pay for it, so I will. That's grace. Being able to go to heaven knowing that you don't earn it. Being able to go, think about this. You know that you now have a pass into heaven Notice, knowing that you sinned today. Knowing that you're struggling with whatever it is that you're going through in your life. Knowing that you didn't act right to that person the other day. Knowing that, you, knowing that little, listen, listen, listen to me. One little white lie is enough to keep you out of hell because that makes you imperfect and you get to go anyway. Why? Because God's riches are at Christ's expense. And he bankrupted heaven so that I can go and that you can go. With the awful attitudes that we have sometimes. With the unbelief that we, use, that we practice sometimes. With the lack of faith that we sometimes walk around with. With all the different ways that we carry ourselves that do not exemplify the like and the love of Christ. And he says, okay, but Christ says, I know what they're like. And I know what they've done. And they honestly don't deserve it. But they can't get there any other way but me. So I'll go. Wow. That's what makes the contrast between the law and grace so dynamic. Because one says, send them to hell. They deserve it. One says, I, I'll, I'll die for them. It's important. That's why I tell you a lot of times, church, we can't just look at the gospel like just I prayed and got accepted into heaven and, and I'm good now. Like, yes, salvation is, you know, all we have to do is ask for it and receive it. But the gospel transcends your moment of prayer. It's something that now turns into an entirety that is your entire life. You, he died for you, so you live for him. It's your reasonable sacrifice. And how do you do it? How are you able to live a victorious Christian life? Because the gospel keeps on working. Whenever you're struggling with your anger, hey, Christ died for that, and I'm, I'm delivered. I'm free from it. I don't have to walk in wrath because Christ died and, and took it on the cross with him. Hey, I don't have to worry about lust because Christ died and took it on the cross with him. Hey, I don't have to worry about all these different struggles that I have in my life. Why? Because Christ died and I can claim deliverance because Christ died for me. I receive it in Jesus' name. A lot of times why we don't live victorious Christian lives, church, is because we don't tap into the power that we forgot that we have. Which is the, the righteousness of Christ in us. Will you fall? Yes, because you're human. And it's not until you get out of this finite body into an infinite one that that's going to change. But if we learn to start relying on Christ more and relying on our flesh less, we'll start to see the effects of grace as we live a transformed Christian life. It's important for us. 
They can't pay for it, so I will. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? The law was a damning mechanism that gave us clarity that we were sinners. That's really, that's really the only purpose of the law. To show you that you're not perfect. To show you that you can't do it all. To show you that you are not having the ability to match what God is. Because guess what? My Bible says that we have not a great high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Those 613 laws, Christ walked through without breaking any single one of them. Perfect. The law was a damning mechanism, but it was important because now we can see the magnitude of what grace did, of what grace is for us. But we have to understand that just because what does Paul say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. I love Paul because he asks a lot of rhetorical questions. Like what? He literally says that. What? Question mark? Like, huh? We sinning now because grace exists? That's not how that works. We have to understand that because grace exists, that does not give us room that does not give us room to abuse it. Grace says that they are damned already through the law, but I'm not here to, that's what Christ said. Christ said, I'm not here to abolish the law. He said, I'm here to fulfill it. He says, the law can only be quenched through death, through blood. Blood for blood, an eye for an eye. It needed something, but get, check this out. Only God can take the, the wrath of God and survive it, church. Only, check this out. Only God could take the, think about that. God put a law in place and realized that, hey, they can't do it. So the only way for it to be quenched is if I die to my own law. In comes Jesus. And how long, if you, if you die at church and you go to an eternal hell, how long is an eternity? Think about this, though. How long... Was Jesus in the grave? Three days. Do you realize? Now think about its context, right? Cross-referencing. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? Then it says a day with the Lord is as a thousand. A day with the Lord is, a, is as a thousand. So think about this. I don't even know how to wrap my mind around this, but think about this. Jesus suffered, and he think about this though. Church, listen, right? This is Bible study, right? For an eternity past. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were together in unity. And somewhere along the eternal line, Jesus had to sever his line between God, who he's been with forever, and spend three, listen to me, he had to suffer an eternity of punishment, an eternity of punishment in three days. We can't even wrap our mind around that. Michael, you're a math guy. Think about it. Spending an eternity into three days, he did it. Think about how expansive, is your, is your brain hurting? Because mine is. Think about how expansive that is. To confine that, and look, raise victorious. Death, where is thy sting? Think about how powerful that is, church. I don't know, I'm excited, I don't know about y'all. But that excites me. To spend an eternity separated from God in three days and then wake up from the grave and say, okay, now that that's over with, let's move on. That's power, church. The power that you get when you become a child of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power used to save your soul from an eternal hell. The same power that you have to become sons of God. 
the same power that you have to live a victorious Christian life. You, the reason why you're not living a victorious Christian life is because you're not tapping into the power that you have. Because you don't realize how strong you really are when Christ gets involved. Grace. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> Look at verse 18. Whew. Thank God for grace. Verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So in verse 18, we let us, John lets us know that there, is no, um, that there is no way to see God because God is a church. What kind of entity is God? The Spirit, right? He's a Spirit. So the closest thing that we have seen to God is Jesus. God manifesting himself in the flesh. Which is the physical manifestation of God through the second person of the Trinity. Listen to me. God is an intricate God, church. He says, hey, I'm a spirit, but my, I can send my son in a form. Check this out. I can send my son into a form that you recognize. If you read Revelation, if you read Revelation and see all kinds of crazy, scary beings that exist in Revelation in the end times, he could have came as whatever he wanted. He said, I'm going to come in the most humble way possible. I'm going to come and be, I'm going to send God. Check this out. For you, church, I'm going to send God to be born in the ghetto, in the manger, dirty. Listen to me. At a hospital, you have to be sanitary when the mother's in labor. You can't go in unless you sanitize. You got to wear a gown. You got to wear the mask. You got to make sure you look. You can't walk up in there. Because that baby has a, has a, doesn't have an immune system built up yet. It has no, no defense mechanism. You can kill that child with the, with the germs that you bring into that room. Christ came born in the ghetto in a manger full of animals, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Not wiped him off in swaddling clothes. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes are, is a cloth or, or a piece of material that is used to wipe off animals. To wipe the moisture off of animals. You ever seen a pig? It's dirty. Horse, cow, cows have these nasty flies that fly around them and they sting you and they hurt. They bite you and they hurt. It's awful. Horses, same thing. Animals are not clean. They are not clean animals. Not clean beings. And that's how Christ is born. I'm going to bankrupt heaven and send him to you in the most humble way possible. What's more humble than a child? Than a child. The lowest caliber of human is a child. They literally can't do anything for themselves. But they demand a lot. Look. He said, I'm going to send them that way. So the closest thing that we have seen to God is Christ. The closest thing that we felt to God is the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? Communing with us personally. Dwelling internally within us. Moving us. Speaking to us. He's like the wind. We can't see him, but we feel his effects. God says, listen to me. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And, and as you look around, you woke up this morning and you breathe air. I made that. Hey, you walked outside to the birds chirping. Hey, I did that. Hey, the gorgeous clouds that you're going to see. Hey, teenagers, we're going to go to Pensacola next month. And you're going to see one of the most beautiful things ever. And that's Pensacola sunsets. Gorgeous. You can attest to that, right, Miss Tassie? You seen them? You paying attention? You didn't pay attention, did you? Pensacola sunsets are gorgeous. He says the sunsets you see, the sun rises, the sun rises in the morning and it sets in the evening. The way that everything works around is because of me. And then not only that, as I'm going to send my spirit, listen to me, y'all. 
8.2 billion people on this planet. And all 8.2 billion people have the capacity to have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. That's crazy if you think about it. I can barely, I can't even be in two places at one time. Shoot, I can barely think about two things at one time. God says, I can, I can have it to where I can have a personal relationship with every single one of them all at the very same time. I can't even wrap my mind around that, church. I don't get it. It's important. It's important. Now, what I want you to do is in the same, in the same place, I want you to draw a line because we're gonna, it's going to bring, bring us back to John the Baptist. It's going to bring us back to John the Baptist, and it's going to tell us something. John the Baptist is going to do some things and talk about some things that relate to us today as Christians. All right? So we're going to look at John's testimony. First, we're going to look at the testimony of a promise. The testimony of a promise. Look at verse 19. It says, and this is the, this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said unto him, who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as, said, as the prophet has said. The prophet Besides, all right. So in verse 19, they inquired about who John is. All right. They inquired about who he is. In verse 20, he doesn't try to take credit for Christ. Did you notice that? He says in verse 20, and he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He doesn't try to take credit for Christ. He lets them know that he is not the one they are seeking. Pay attention to that, church. We're coming back to it. I am not the Christ. I'm not the one that you're seeking. I can, he confessed and he denied not. But look at verse 21. Verse 21 says this. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. Church, I want to give you guys a couple of scripture references. If you'll go back to the last book of the Old Testament... The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, we're going to look at some things. Because the Bible is the best book on itself, church. Commentary. Commentary. The church is the best, com the Bible, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. Look at Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. And look at verse 5. It says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah. The prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So he so up first it says, okay, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 predict the return of Elijah. Alright? It predicts the return of Elijah. So who they ask him first? Are thou are you Elias? Right? New Testament translation, not translation, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, spelling, I guess you could say, of Elijah. Are you Elijah? He says, No, I'm not. Flip all the way back to Deuteronomy. Anyone ever try to read the Bible from cover to cover? You go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and go all the way through the law, through the law Numbers, and then Deuteronomy? Do you know that Deuteronomy is the law again? All right. 
That's tough. It's the law, just the law again. It's like, in case you guys missed it, I'm going to give it to you a second time. <laughs> all of it, all 613 laws and punishments. Enjoy it. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. Look at verse 15. It says, the, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet. What's, look, what's that? That letter. What's it in your Bible? What, what, what is that letter? Anyone see it? That's what kind of, what kind of letter is that, church? It's a capital letter, which means to say what? Church, come on, wake up. It's a, cap, it's a proper noun. It's a proper noun. I will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God, in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire anymore that I die not. In verse 15, I want to pay attention to you that that, that prophet that is talking about in verse 21 of John is referring to the coming of the Messiah. So if you flip back over, if you flip back over to John chapter 1 and verse 21, now we have some context, right? Of, on John, uh, John 1, 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? No. Why? Because it was a prophecy that Elijah would return. Are you him? No. Are thou that prophet? No. The Messiah? No, that's not him. All right? Look at verse 22. So the messengers of the Sanhedrin, by the way, um, wait, the messengers of the Sanhedrin, they ask, who is he that they can return and tell them? Right? So the messengers come. Does anyone know who the Sanhedrin is? No. I got some kids in here that were in my Bible class. Look at that. None of y'all paid attention. None of y'all paid attention. What's the Sanhedrin? Who knows? Brother Jonathan. They're the legal court of the Jewish religion. Okay, and what are they made up of, Brother Jonathan? Do you know? They're made up of lawyers. Uh huh, but what kind of people? There's certain kind of people that they're made up of. The Sanhedrin, who knows? Not just Jews, but what kind of Jews? They're made, the Sanhedrin is not just made up of lawyers, but they're made up of elements of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they both, it's a, it's a mixture of them both, that make up the Sanhedrin. Does anyone know how many are in the Sanhedrin at its capacity? Does anyone know? Anyone know? Anyone know? Going once, going twice. There are 71. 71. So now you guys know that. Have you ever seen the Sanhedrin in the New Testament? You'll know that it's a conglomeration of Pharisees and Sadducees, and there are, at its extent, um, 71 of them. So they come back and they're... He's talking about those things, okay? Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as, say, as said the prophet Esaias. Okay, so this is going on. We have some more things. So I want you to flip over to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. The book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. One of my personal favorite Old Testament books. Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verse 3. It says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, look at verse 23 again. It says that he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of, of the Lord. As said the prophet Esaias. So he says, yes, I am a fulfillment of prophecy, just not the one that you thought. 
Just not the one that you thought. He's testifying of the voice that would be coming to declare about the coming of the Lord. So we saw the testimony of a promise. Let's look at the testimony of the baptism. The testimony of the baptism. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, it says, And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. Right? And so they were told who they were sent by. Verse 25, And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? So they say, hey, if you're none of those things that's mentioned, then what authority do you have to perform the powerful acts that you must have permission to do? You must have permission to do these things. So if you are not any of the people that were mentioned before, who gave you permission? Put a star by that. Because that's important, and we're going to come back to it. Look at verse 26. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He says, hey, I'm only baptizing y'all by water, but you don't even realize it? That there is someone who is walking among you, who's dwelt with you guys for a very, very long time, and you have no idea who it is. Hey, can we, can we go back in, in John for a little while? What does the Bible say? It says this. In verse 10, right? Last time we looked at this, it says he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So now we're fast-forwarding, and John's reminding them, he says, hey, man, there's somebody that's walking among you guys that you have no idea even exists. Look at verse 27. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. He says, man, y'all are tripping about me baptizing with water? The person that's coming after me is so powerful, I'm not even worried to take the man's shoes off. He is that holy that I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals. Someone's coming. Verse 28. These things were done in Bethlehemba, uh, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. So in verse 28, they let us know that the ministry of John was generally done in this area of Bethlehemba, just beyond the Jordan River. Ironically, Bethlehemba means fairy house, or house of passage, or house of passage. In order to get into Judaism, did you know how you have to get into it? You have to be baptized into Judaism. And John was in a location, John was in a location, what's funny is, this is believed to be the exact same place where Joshua crossed over the Jordan to bring people into the promised land. The Bible doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. We're almost done. So we looked at the testimony of the promise. We looked at the testimony of a baptism. Now we're going to look at the testimony of the Son of God. The testimony of the Son of God. Look at verse 29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming up coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John immediately recognizes the divinity of Jesus and the intentions Jesus had to be the salvation mechanism that he was sent to be. So he walks up and he's like, huh? I told Look who's here. Look who's here. I just told you guys about that. Look at verse 30. It says, This is he 
of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And he's cross-referencing that to verse 27 that we talked about before, as he told him those things before. Hey, he who's coming before me, he who's coming after me, is preferred before me. That's the third time in the passage that he mentioned that. And if something is repeated, church, it is important. He says, look, I told you so. I told you so. Here he is. Now this is where things get a little bit interesting. Look at verse 31. And I knew him not. And I knew him not. But that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And I knew him not. That's weird. Church, why is that weird? Because they, they were cousins. Right? Did I read that right in my Bible, church? They were cousins? He said, so I see a guy coming, and I recognize immediately that this person is coming, and he's of God. But then he says this a couple verses later, that, and I knew him not. What's important about this is that they were actually cousins. But this is what's important. Church, who knows where John the Baptist spent his time? In the wilderness. Eating locusts and wild honey like a weirdo. Right? Bible says he was wearing camel skin. He had long hair. And scary person. Right? Scary looking person. Probably look a little homeless, really. You know what I'm saying? Walking around, just looking all hairy. You know what I'm saying? He probably had a, a crazy long beard, long hair, because he took, he's a Nazarite, we find out in the other Gospels. So he didn't cut his hair, right? And, and he stayed away from the fruit of the vine and all these other things. He didn't touch the dead things. And so he was just walking around, just doing his thing, preaching the Gospel, preparing you to come to the Lord. The kingdom is at hand. Where was Jesus spending his time? Growing up, we know that's probably a trick question because Jesus spent time in a lot of places. But especially in his adulthood, Nazareth. Jesus coming from Nazareth. So they were not, they did not grow up together. You understand? So he, it was going to be, I mean, the last time we see them knowing, talking with each other at all, or at all, is what happened. Is when um, uh, Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, right? And what happens? The baby leaps for joy in her belly, right? Because she was, she was that's the last time they even, so unless, unless John remembered what was going on in the womb, they didn't know. There was no recollection. They didn't spend any time together. We don't even see Mary and Elizabeth spending any time with each other after that either. Right? So, that's important. So they meet at this state for the very first time when Christ shows up to us baptism. Right? Because John is in the wilderness. He's preaching. The, the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming. The Lord's coming. And he's baptizing people at Bethesda, you know, outside of the Jordan. And he's over here doing his ministry. And this man shows up and he's like, look, guys, he... This guy is here that I told you about. And then we're going to look here in verse 32 that shows us when John realized for the first time that this was actually his cousin. And why? Look at verse 32. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descend up. Church, lettering. What letter is that? It's a capital letter. Is it capital in y'all Bible? It's capital in mine. Spirit. Meaning what? It's a proper noun. Descending and he remaining on him, the same as which baptized with the. Oh, sorry, I skipped verses. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and then abode upon him. If you read other portions of the gospel, what else does it say, church? Who knows what the last part of that verse says in the other gospels? 
And I heard a voice from heaven come down which said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So this is the first, the Gospels give us the first New Testament reference or citation for the Trinity. Being all together in one spot. John's like, okay, I baptized Jesus and I saw the Holy Spirit come down and just rested on him and stayed there. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So he's like, whoa, this guy is special. God, can you imagine that? You're just over here doing your job, doing the ministry, and the Lord's like, hey, John, that's Jesus. Oh, hey! Hey! He sees for the first time that's who this is. So look at verse 23. John reiterates, And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon, with, upon of whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Something important that we find out here is that John reiterates that he didn't know him. He was just being obedient, baptizing with water. He said, the same person that told me to baptize with water, I watched now baptize with the Holy Ghost. And I realized for, for now that that was the Son of God. Well, of course, church, like we did last week, there's going to be some takeaways. What do we learn? What are some takeaways that we get from this? Number one, God gave us grace to be free from the law, but it's no excuse to sin. God gave us, from this lesson tonight, we learned that God gave us grace to be free from sin, but it's no excuse to sin. Free from the law. Hey, that contract that your life signed that was going to condemn you to an eternal hell, I was the loophole in it. And I set you free. But now you have a responsibility to live a holy and set apart life. To live righteously. To live your life for me. Because that's what you're supposed to do. Because I died, and it's your reasonable service that you live for me. The least you can do is give your life to me. I saved you, didn't I? I died for you. Hey, look, strings attached. Now, you can be saved and not be a Christian and understand that. You understand that, right, church? You can get saved, salvation is free to all. But being a Christian is different. Christian means Christ one or Christ follower or little Christ. You can be saved and not be a Christian. He says, hey, there are no stipulations upon salvation and receiving my son, but understand that the gospel transcends what you said in the prayer just now. Live your life emanating my gospel. Being that light. Being that salt. Church, we talk about salt and light a lot over the last few weeks. I hope it's gotten into your head by now that God expects you to be salt and light. And understanding that who you are in the dark is what, church? Who you are. Who you are. He says, I want you to be... You ever met somebody who is really straightforward? Who you, what you see is what you get. Don't you love those kind of people? Who they are. And you just, you just know it. Because you may have seen them in several different circumstances. And you've seen them at home. You've seen them out when they're with people. You've seen them in different places. You know what they're like. They're straightforward. What you see is what you get. I don't have to worry about you being someone different when you're not around certain friends or whatever. Because I know that you're a true person. Don't you love those people? Is that you? You coming in here, you playing church, you wearing your nice clothes, you carrying your King James Bible, and you pick up that hymnal and you sing all the hymns in there, but you go home and you live a different life. You talk a different way. 
you act a different way. You're around people who do not exemplify and glorify God. You're, you're in places that do not ever exemplify and glorify God. And then you go home and you do all of these different things. And what happens? You come back to church on Wednesday after Sunday, knowing that you are not living a life that honored and glorified God. And just carry on the same way. Pastor, that sounds judgmental. No. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm trying to let you know that the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and the evil. And that God expects you to live a life. Listen to me. Are you expected to be, expected to be perfect? No. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. Abs absolutely not. I'm not perfect. Not even, not even a little bit. But I do know that God expects me to be consistent. God expects me to live a life that seeks to honor and glorify him all the time. And am I going to fall sometimes? Yeah. Am I going to have to ask for grace sometimes? Yes. For forgiveness sometimes? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them? Yeah. And I have to. Often. Church. Well, you can't just be like, well, that's just the way that I am. Parents in the room, I'm not a parent. So I'm not going to pretend that I know everything about parenting. But I'll tell you this. One of the biggest things, working with teens over the past five years, right? So the things that they don't tell you, they tell me. Remember that, right? One of the greatest ways to ruin your child's walk is to live a double life. One of the greatest ways is to live a life that is, that is not consistent. And one of the biggest people that catch on to those things are going to be your kids. You know how many times kids have walked into my office and said, man, my parents are hypocrites. I've heard it. I went to Bible college with Penny with some kids that said, my parents are hypocrites. I'm only here because they made me. We got to make sure that we are living a life, whether you're a parent or not, that says, okay, I'm going to glorify God all the time. You know, the Bible says that there are people that come after us, our generation that comes after us, that, that, that we have to pack their shoes. It's important that we realize that we have to be examples all the time. All the time. Number two, no one has seen God, but has been seen all around us. We talked about how we are part of his handiwork, how Christ died for us, how the Holy Spirit lives within us. God exists in all kinds of ways. I believe that God reveals himself to us. In the, this is free, church. Ready for this? I believe that God reveals himself to us in more ways than just the Bible. Number one, I believe that God reveals himself to us by nature. By nature. You look around and see the complexities of the universe. The complexities of the body, you know, if you lack a chromosome that will send you into complete and severe retardation. Do you realize that the earth spins on its axis at a perfect speed so that we don't float into the air or are crushed by gravity? That if the, that if the, the earth moves one degree closer to the sun, Mike, we'll burn up. If it moves one degree away, we'll freeze to death. There's too many complexities for this universe to just be an accident, church. Nature. Hey, and that's just a few. You want some more? See me later. I'll share some more with you. Number two, right? I believe that God reveals himself to us through history. Through history. For as long as we can trace back, people have been trying to stifle out the name of God. People have been trying to stifle out the name of God. I think, I think it was Emperor Nero that said, no, Voltaire. I think it was Voltaire. Who said, before I die, I want to see Christianity extinct. And now his Bible is a, is a princess. And now his house is a Bible princess factory. That's funny. As long as we can go back 
We see people trying to look. If God's not real, why are so many people trying to eradicate him? I'm going to leave it alone, though, church. I'm going to leave it alone. Hey, I believe that God reveals himself to us through conscience. Through conscience. What does that mean? If you look around the world, everyone is trying to find out this higher power. You don't believe me? Man, you go over to Papua New Guinea and they worship in the sun god, and the, the mouse god, and the water god. And they Look in the Bible, you think about ba the, the prophets of Baal and how they, they believe that the, the prophets of Baal believed that Baal was going to be able to rain down fire for them. And so they were cutting themselves and throwing themselves in the fire and, and on the altar and all these different things. And people sacrificed their children to these false gods. Why? Because everyone in some capacity believes in a higher power. I don't believe it's an accident, church. Because I believe it's God, because God does not want, God, is, God doesn't want us to be robots, right? He wants us to make the choice to come to him freely. But I believe that he instills in us like a little bit of a, of a push. A little bit of a push. Miss Cassie, remember the first time you ever brought Weston on a slide? Was he scared? Most kids are, right? As they have to talk him into it and be like, man, it's gonna do, I'll wait for you at the bottom, you'll be fine. You know, you can give him a little bit of an encouragement, right? A little bit of a push. I believe that's, not, that's what that is. I'm going to instill in you the mentality of an intelligent design so that when you find me, it won't be an accident. That you'll recognize who I am. Alright? So, the conscience, nature, history, and then of course, through the word of God. Where he revealed himself to us. Number three. We don't take credit for the work of God. We just bear witness of it. Church, the Bible says that there's going to be a day where there many will be called, well, many will come in my name. We got to be careful, church. You don't walk in here and say, you don't walk and do something and say, man, look what I did. Look what I did. Hey, church, I believe that God's going to fill this place up. And the day that someone, the day that I say that, look what I did or look what we did, I want someone to smack me in the back of the head. Because that's a lie. And there are so many times as believers that we take credit for the work that God does. I remember some time, I remember one time I shared my testimony and someone tried to debunk it as saying, man, things just worked out right for you and you fought hard and you were strong and you overcame this and you overcame that. And he tried to place it on me saying that God didn't exist. It was me overcoming my own. Listen to me, I don't know, about, I don't know what he knows, but that is not correct. Because it's only by his grace that I didn't fall flat on my face. And that you haven't either. We got to make sure like John did. John says, listen to me. What does it say here? Let me find it again. What verse is it? It says, um, I'm searching, I'm searching, I'm searching. I'm searching. Um, in verse 20. He confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He said, hey, listen to me. I'm not him. I'm not him. I'm here to bear witness of it. Early in the Bible, it says he was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. Church, we are to bear witness of the light, not take credit for it. Number four, in salvation, we become children of God. Remember, they said, well, how do you have the authority? How do you have the authority to do these things, to baptize? And all this stuff. You're not, you're not the prophet. You're not Christ. You're not Elias. You're not any of that stuff. So who says that you can do these things? Church. In salvation, we become children of God. But can I bring you back again to the beginning of John chapter 1? Where it says this. It says, 
Um, let me find it again. I'm getting lost. Um, 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 um. Verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Church, whenever they come to you and ask you what authority you have, you say, it's Jesus' name. What authority do you have? Because the, the Bible says that when we get saved, we become joint heirs with Christ. The authority that you have to preach and to teach and that we have to baptize and all these different things are all by Jesus' name. You have the authority to do so. And verse 5 and lastly, baptism is viewed twice in the Bible. Baptism is viewed twice in the Bible. The first one is baptism by what, church? Water. By water, right? Baptism by water, all right? Baptism by water, and then the other one is baptism by? By the Holy Ghost, right? The Holy Spirit. So what's the difference? Baptism by the Spirit comes at the moment of salvation. You are now filled, you're now filled with the Holy Ghost, right? That gives you access to God. And dwelling in Him, you now, now He dwells inside of you eternally. Right? So, uh, when you get saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is now act as that conscience mechanism, that comforting mechanism, that guiding mechanism in your life. But then we find out that by water, it's a picture, right? I wear my wedding ring, right? I wear my wedding ring. Now, if I take my wedding ring off, am I any less baptized? Am I any less baptized? If I take off my ring, am I any less married? No. This ring is a what, church? A picture of what already happened. Baptism is a public declaration, right, of what you have already done in here. That's why in the Bible, in Acts chapter 2, they got saved. Those that received the Lord, they were baptized when? The same day. You know that baptism is your first act of obedience as a Christian? It's your first act of obedience as a Christian. It's a picture, a declaration, an outward picture of what you've already done internally. So if you're in here and you've been saved and you haven't been baptized, it needs to be done because it's obedient. It's being obedient to Christ, all right? And with that being said, that is the end of part two of our journeying with John series.